Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, everybody, and welcome back once again to Dirty Sexy History. My name is Jessica Kale, and this has been kind of a heavy season so far. We've covered whale attacks, 18th century divorce, psychotropic drugs, and the American plan. We've covered labor history, Madame Blavatsky, syphilis, and sinister polyamorous cults. We've got some more pretty heavy episodes coming up before the season wraps up, but just in case you need a little bit of a palate cleanser before we go even deeper into the gutter, this week we have a short but sweet interview that I think you're going to love. Now, I feel so lucky that we have so many great listeners. Right from the start, I've wanted to make academic history more accessible to a wider audience. And part of that, for me, means supporting authors, historians, and history students, too. So no matter where you are in your career, your contributions are valid. And if you're working on something that you think would be a good fit for this show or our website, I want to hear about it. You can contact me through the website at DirtySexyHistory.com. I'd love to hear from you. This week, our guest is Emily Kalea. She just finished her master's in 19th century studies, and she wrote a stellar dissertation about sex work in Victorian poetry. How were sex workers portrayed? How did it change over the course of the 19th century? And how did that art affect women's rights in the real world? Plenty of people talk about the history of sex work, and we have certainly covered it on this show, but I thought Emily's perspective and the focus on poetry was really interesting. So, of course, I wanted to ask her about it. Emily is actually the youngest guest we've ever had on this show, but I think you'll agree she does a great job. So here's my interview with Emily Kalea. All right, everybody, my guest today is Emily Kalea. Emily just finished her master's in 19th century studies, and today we're going to talk a little bit about her research. So, Emily, congratulations on finishing your master's. That is such an achievement. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you for having me today. So in your thesis, you're looking at depictions of sex work in Victorian poetry. And I thought that was such an interesting perspective. I think that sometimes people forget that literature can give us a whole lot of valuable insight into the periods that produced it. But you look at both here, both the history and the literature. But before we get to the literature, let's set the scene. What was life like for a sex worker in Victorian Britain? Yeah, totally. I totally agree that history kind of gets over, like literature and history kind of, they're interlinked really well, but they get overlooked. So it was, I wanted to make sure that both were connected. Life for a prostitute in Victorian era was quite difficult for them. Um, we recently had issues of the Industrial Revolution, which although seems like a great thing for many people, it was creating more jobs, which was brilliant. But obviously, more jobs means more people fill them, which means less money. So then women were actually struggling to get the jobs that they needed to provide an income. So unfortunately, they were they were stuck in these workhouses or factories. And then uh, unfortunately, they were then sexually assaulted and things like that. And because of the Poor Reform Act in 1834... It meant they didn't have access to legal representation. So these women were like, not only were they, you know, being 
sexually assaulted, they're also struggling to provide for themselves and their families. So it was a very, very rough time for them. Mm, oh my goodness, I can't even imagine. Uh, and of course, these jobs, you know, during the Industrial Revolution, they were they were very, very difficult. They're they're not like jobs like we think now. I mean, some of these people were working what like sixteen hour days. Mm -hmm. yeah definitely like the, it was heavy lifting like dangerous work as well like going in between machines and just putting their lives at risk it wasn't a, a nice time at all oh no goodness so yes. who became sex workers and how did they get drawn into that situation so it was mainly like you people that already work in factories and industries like that as well as seamstresses that were already struggling to get money as it was so they would end up resulting to prostitution as a means of survival and just to get themselves more money. But also there were also women that did also make a choice and also wanted to be prostitutes because they could get more money and it was a good income. Um, so it wasn't all necessarily doom and gloom, you know, but it was a means to survival for the majority of women at that point. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. So how were sex workers viewed by different social groups? I imagine that like moral reformers might not have been as sympathetic as say the pre-Raphaelites. <laughs> Definitely. I mean, uh, pre-Raphaelites, I feel like they understand a little bit more because they obviously started with like rebelling from conventions of the artist Raphael. So they know what it's like to rebel against like normal way of living. Um, so my research kind of looked at how middle class women often live their lives um, based on Coventry Patmore's image of the angel of the house. So they kind of dedicate their lives to their husbands and the house and making sure everything's pretty. Um, and when they're growing up, they're kind of told stories about like why you shouldn't want to be a fallen woman. But these women are already in higher class society, so they don't need these fables to tell them not to become prostitutes. They're never going to do it. So I suppose a lot of upper class equivalents kind of viewed them as something to be shamed against and women didn't want to support them because that's what they've been taught. And then men kind of viewed them, or the majority that I looked at, as a matter of vice. In a way, women were, they were abused, unfortunately, from both their own and men. So, yeah. Mm. Yeah, goodness, it sounds like you can't win. So, um, yeah, literally. <laughs> yeah. You talk a little bit about the Contagious Diseases Act, which is something that I don't think a lot of people are familiar with now. So what was that? And how did that change the way that sex workers were treated? So it was an act that was introduced in 1864 um, that basically there were a lot of soldiers at the time that were coming back and accessing the service of prostitutes. And it was found that they were these soldiers and, and military men were being diagnosed with diseases. So they couldn't work out where that was coming from but they had an idea it was prostitution so they introduced the contagious diseases act as a way so that police had more power to basically suspect that women were prostitutes and inter like give invasive medical exams mm -hmm. so it basically meant that they were using their abrupt police force as a way to check if women were contracting sexual diseases in a way that wasn't very comfortable for these women Mm, yeah, goodness, I hate to even think about it. But can you tell us a little bit about lock hospitals? Yeah, sure. So um, when these women were being thought by the police that they were prostitutes, mm -hmm. um, a lock hospital is somewhere where the suspected prostitute was taken to recover from the illness um, so that they didn't continue to spread disease. Um, in my opinion, I think they were used as a way as a scare tactic to deter the women from going back to prostitution because they were often locked away at months of a time and they had their freedom and sexual liberty taken from them. 
Um, so they were basically a recovery hospital, but it wasn't a very nice one that you get a nice cup of orange juice with. So yeah, the poor women that were there, I'd, I can't even fathom to think about how they managed it, but yeah. yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Just terrible. So while all this is happening, the way that sex workers are being portrayed in art and literature is changing. Can you give us a little bit of an overview of the kind of works that were being produced? Yeah, of course. So um, before the Victorian period, we had something known as the Romantics, and they looked at like the sublime and like all the beauty of the world and how wonderful life is. And then we kind of get to the Victorian period and it's like, ooh, life is shit. So <laughs> um, we, um, I chose to look at different forms of poetry as a way to represent how Victorian life changed from the Romantics. So um, I picked something known as a dramatic monologue and epics. So dramatic monologues are long forms of poetry, um, which kind of allow, there's many different like sections to a dramatic monologue, but the one I looked at was um, allowing the author to create a character to act as a voice. And, um, and then epics are just really, really long ones that are brilliant, but they take you a while to get through, but they are great. So Augusta Webster and Dante use, um, Dante Gabriel Rossetti, sorry, use monologues to become a character as a way of providing representation for these women. See, whereas Browning and um, Christina Rossetti provide like a character, but they're not necessarily doing it as a way to provide as a, as a voice, just as a way to represent a story sort of thing and a response to the treatment of women. Perfect. So who was Augusta Webster and how did she come to write A Castaway? So Augusta Webster, um, also known as Julia Webster, I believe, um, was a poet amongst other professions, but she, she was also an essayist. Um, she worked really closely with women's suffrage. Um, and I'm not, I'm not entirely sure how she managed to write a castaway, although I would love to sit down and have a cup of tea with her. Um, but I should imagine with her working so closely with women's suffrage, a bit like Christina Rossetti, I think she felt a bit connected to the women that were experiencing these troubles of Victorian society. And I think she wanted to write a castaway as a way to correct, correct the narratives that were wrote on fallen women, mm -hmm. as a way to decriminalise them rather than how they were being represented in the media as, as shameful and things like that. Mm, yes, definitely. So in Webster's monologue, the character Eulalie expresses some righteous rage at women's place in society. Can you tell us a little bit more about this? Yeah, I think uh, I think Webster wanted to also represent that it wasn't just men that, that we were angry at at the Victorian period. I think she feels frustrated with women that conform to the domestic as they don't necessarily recognize the realities of these women. So I think there's a bit where Webster makes a comparison to like seasons um, and how these fallen women or prostitutes, shall we say, are compared to winter and then the upper class equivalents are summer. So they're trying to survive in different seasons with each other and neither can flourish. And I, I think it's because obviously summer and winter just don't mix. And I think it's a way of Webster explaining that everyone is part of the problem. And until we fix and come into the same kind of thinking process, no one is gonna get any further or get any better. So I think she's just very angry at, at one, at the men for how they're actually getting away with treating them like that, women for not wanting to be in a sisterhood. And I think partly herself because she she can't break from it either. So it's, it's a very hard one for her. And I, I feel for her. I feel like she's like one of my best friends at the minute. Like. <laughs> 
I know her psyche very well. <laughs> oh, goodness. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. When I was reading it, I was surprised by how relatable it was, you know. And mm-hmm. uh, when these kinds of feelings are expressed, like in modern historical fiction or historical romance, authors are typically accused of being anachronistically feminist. I, I hate that phrase. But but women mm-hmm. at the time, they did feel this way and they were writing about it. Mm-hmm. So would you consider that feminist? So... I have to, if my supervisor is listening, please close your ears because I will get so told off for this. But I, I think it is very feminist. So <laughs> as as an academic, I have to say that it's proto-feminist because obviously the theory wasn't about then and we're not really supposed to say that. However, I just feel like you can really feel the anger from these writers across mm. all the poets. And to me, when I read it, because obviously I studied second wave feminism in my undergrad, it feels very, very similar to what the second wave feminists were arguing for. I mean, obviously, uh, in terms of the domestic and and being a housewife, they feel angry in terms of having to conform themselves to that circle. Mm -hmm. So I feel like that's very much how Webster, Rossetti and, and, oh, I've forgotten the name of another one. I'm so sorry. Um... (laughs) let's have a little hum session but yeah Webster Rossetti Rossetti and Browning that's the one sorry Elizabeth um (laughs) I think they're just very angry about about how female representation is at this point so yeah I definitely argue it's feminist and I'm so sorry Laura (laughs) well it um you know even if if it wasn't necessarily called feminism I mean like it's still it's still the same ideas isn't it it's still the same kind of feeling Yeah, yeah I mean I think would you argue it's feminist? I certainly would. <laughs> I really would. Yeah. Um, good, although good, I mean, good. like I, I can I can see things that I would argue are feminist back to Samaria. Um, so I mean, <laughs> I think it's just kind of an issue of terminology, really. But um, yeah. I think the idea of of women wanting equality or objecting to their place in the world, um, I, I think limiting that to like the 1960s is very silly. So if we mm-hmm. need a different word for it, that's fine. But I, I think it's something that has has really kind of tied us to to all of the all of the women in the past. You know, it's it's a really yeah. universal experience. I don't think it's new. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I like something I found with it is that it, their experiences aren't much different to us now. I mean, mm-hmm. obviously we we have a bit more of protection in terms of the law, but sex work is still shamed upon. Like mm-hmm. and it's it's like if you look at the mo- if I'd say like the modern equivalent now is like things like OnlyFans, and yeah. like a lot of people judge, like women and men for being on that. But it's 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 we're supposed to have sexual liberty and freedom, and I don't. My personal opinion is I don't think unless it's your, unless it's affecting yourself, you should nobody else should have an opinion on it. So it's just protect and and look after people rather than criminalize and judge them, which is what should have happened back then. So yeah. I absolutely agree. Well said. So you talk a little bit about the Victorian belief that men were inherently noble, kind of regardless of their association with sex workers, while women who worked in the sex industry were labeled as a great social evil. So what did the writers you studied have to say about this kind of double standard? Yeah, so so, so I'd say in chapter three, I really look into... um, general actual public opinion rather than actual writers about how MPs were actually responding to this kind of behavior and how we view men as noble and I think one of the MPs mentioned something along the lines of if this if this was a man that you were that you were trying to put the contagious the act of the contagious diseases towards you wouldn't even dare to invade that body Mm -hmm. because he's a man 
so I think that was something that really stood out to me that they're willing to do it just because they were women but mm-hmm. because they're men they have a respect and, and they don't dare touch them um and Eulalai really expresses her anger um towards noble men that have careers because they're like doctors and lawyers and I think she says like quite quite funnily bless her I think she says something like oh doctors and lawyers who create lies and portions which potions reminds me of like witchcraft and like wizardry and in order to manipulate their clients yet they're viewed as knowable so I think she's like well they're no better than I am because they're telling lies and, and they're they're manipulating their clients to be a higher class member of society so I think she's angry at that and then if I look at Barrett Browning her um her character or I can't think narrator that's the word I'm looking for um she is a middle-class woman who wants to be a writer but because she is a middle-class woman she can't be and because she's just a woman she can't be a writer because that's a men's job and her aunt um tries to tell her multiple times like have you done your sewing have you done this have you done that which are all stereotypically pinned at women's work um and I think she gets annoyed because she feels like she has to sell herself in order to be viewed as normal and uh, noble sorry so I think there's a lot to be angry at and a lot of I don't know how to put it I think she just they're all just very annoyed at the fact that men are viewed as noble regardless of what they do and I think it's just infuriating (laughs) yeah yeah and that um that frustration with doctors that she mentions, of course, you know, I, I think I, obviously everybody kind of has like these these experiences, but it has a darker undertone when you think about how doctors were treating women at this time. You know, mm-hmm. we we've talked a little bit on the podcast before about uh, women being institutionalized against their will. Yeah, uh, doctors mm-hmm. uh, treating them for hysteria and and sometimes uh, barbaric and and horrible yeah. ways. So you know, of, of course, like they might. <laughs> they might be a bit frustrated that that some of these men are are literally butchering women and they're mm-hmm. still seen as as respectable and it's very interesting that that point that you raise about about men being seen as you know kind of inherently respectable and their bodies are kind of inviolable but but women mm-hmm. you know their their body is kind of public isn't it yeah yeah that I mean there's parts of it where um Dante Gabriel was at his narrator Jenny kind of this child that's a boy calls Jenny a thing and like just objectifying this woman and they don't know anything about her. And that's Mm. something that really gets me. You can't, you can't know anything about someone you're not close to. So how dare you objectify them for your own benefit of getting away with being rude about someone. So I think it's, it's a difficult one. I mean, and you're right about the doctors, like they didn't have any understanding really of the female body to be, to be, treating women that way mm-hmm. and it's unbelievable and you, you sit and look back at it and you think how did they get away with it but I suppose that's medical at the time but I hate making excuses like there should yeah. be no excuse but like yeah. there is and but there just shouldn't <laughs> <laughs> no I, I completely oh. agree with you and I'm so glad that you mentioned Dante Gabriel Rossetti as well so while many of the authors that you studied are women, you do also have uh, the male perspective like Rossetti's. So how did he view sex work and how might his own experience have influenced that? So Rossetti, when he was writing Jenny, he had to like redraft it like three or four times because he just wasn't sure how best to represent these women. 
and I think because there was such a change in legislation so we'd got we'd had like the um Paul Reform Act that we'd had and then it went to the 1864 Contagious Diseases Act and then by the time he was releasing Jenny the 1870 Married Women's Property Act came out which gave women more chance to um, have their own property and have their own money um, so there was a lot going on for women in terms of by the end of the period um, things had changed so I think he really struggled to craft Jenny that way in a way that would get his opinions around sex work through and I think Rossetti does a really, Gabriel Rossetti does a really, really good job of exploring the complications between himself and his association with a sex worker because he be, he begins to be quite supportive and he defends her against like onlookers and upper class women. But then by the end of, of the monologue, he's internally, he's almost like really scared because he doesn't he can't understand her even though he's noble and he's read about her he's not her so he's got no chance of understanding who she is without actually unfortunately accessing her services that she has and he he ends up throwing coins on her hair so he ends up being no better than than the actual men that use it so I think I mentioned he fluctuates between like compassion and compulsion towards her mm. and I Mm. I think that's just a way of Rossetti opening this idea of the taboo about sex work because it wasn't something that was talked about. So I think it was a way of him saying, it's okay to have these feelings, but we need to learn from it and, and, and get better. I think that's how I see Dante Gabriel Rossetti's opinion on it. And I think he he wanted to make a better life for these women and much so that he included a lot of women that were into sex work in his artwork. So, you know, and he tried to make a representation for people that weren't criminalizing them. Mm, it's uh, true. Uh, a lot of his models were sex workers, weren't they? Correct. Yes, yes, lots. So the experience of the Victorian sex worker tends to be viewed as totally opposite from like the housewife. But as you point out, women in both situations were still subordinate and silenced. So how were these experiences similar and how were they different? Yeah, so I, I looked at, I tried to think about, my supervisor was very, very honest with me and she said, you need to try and make it so that you don't hate the upper class equivalent. And I was like, that's very hard. Like, <laughs> because they're, they're part of the problem. But I think at this point, it's important to realise that they the upper class women were also going through quite a difficult time because they were being um conformed to the idea of the angel of the house they were domestic housewives and that was all they were kind of good for I put that in quotation marks just for uh, the listeners there yeah um, but I think part of what's similar is that they're still being controlled by men because the woman doesn't have a choice to be a prostitute and the woman who's married who's an upper class equivalent has to get married so she's still they're both in control of men but I think the major problem is you choose to marry as an upper class equivalent you choose who you want to marry in that way so you choose to be in a long-term relationship with that person whereas a sex worker just has to put up with whoever they are they have no choice they can't they rarely get out of the profession itself um so they're they're silenced and similar but in a way that is very difficult for both of them and it's a it's a dissertation in itself I think just the the idea of silence and and and, and all the rest but I just I wish 
I wish the women would just work together <laughs> as like a little power play and I'd love someone to like make a film on it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Instead of uh, uh, kind of resenting each other, you know, kind of see what they have mm -hmm. in common. Because in, in both situations, mm -hmm. as you mentioned, you know, they, they don't really have any choice. They're still yeah. just completely beholden to these men. Uh-huh. And I know it wouldn't be historically like accurate, of course, um, but just just to see them like like little light bulb moment of like, hang on, we're both in this situation. What if we could get out like sort of thing? And it's so infuriating. Sometimes like when I was writing, I used to sit in my room and I felt like I was in the room with like all the writers and I just wanted to like scream at them and be like, oh, my God, you're so right. Like. <laughs> Yeah, it's amazing when you find a piece of work like that that you can really resonate with, you know, and you really relate to yeah. the people. I, I think that's just wonderful. And it sounds like you pick some really good things to work on. And uh, and speaking of which, tell us about the Goblin Market. Oh, Goblin Market, my favorite. Um, So the Goblin Market has many interpretations and you kind of work with it to make it fit what you want to say. So for me, um, the general basics of the Goblin Market is it tells a tale of two sisters, um, Laura and Lizzie, who are tempted by two goblin merchants. And in doing so, unfortunately, one of them is tempted. She buys the fruit and in return, she kind of sells herself to these devils. Uh, well, they are devils, basically, to the goblins. And her sister Lizzie, eventually by the end of the uh, poem, comes to her rescue. So... That kind of side of the story highlights the importance of like women trying to help each other and how the sisterly bond could actually really impact the change of the way women live. Um, but for me, I looked at Goblin Market as well as that as a temptation of sexuality. So the goblins are selling like fruit and there's like cherries plucked and, and very sensual description about this fruit. Um, and you can kind of see how it's so tempting for them to get involved. And it's kind of like a metaphor for sex work mm. um, because it's how tempting the money is that that they get from it in a way. I mean, it was it was a profitable job, but it obviously came with, as we've, as we've discussed, it came with many, many bad things with it. Um, so I think it's kind of like how prostitution can be viewed as something that's quite sexually tempting. But in the end, I, th I can't remember if it's Laura or Lizzie. I always get them confused. One of them suffers a seizure. Um, and it, if it wasn't for for the other sister, like selling, um, buying the fruit to like resurrect her, much like the, the story of Adam and Eve, then they both could be lost to the temptation of of, of that kind of work. So yeah, it's a really, really good poem. Very long, but well, not even that long, but very worth it. <laughs> yeah, goodness, that sounds so interesting. And another common motif, apart from the fruit, something that comes up a lot in this kind of poetry is women's hair. So what did it signify mm. to the Victorians and how was it used in this kind of literature? So hair has like several different connotations to it, which is, again, you can kind of twist it to make it how you want it. Um, so hair sometimes is often used as a token of love, um, known as something known as a memento mori. So it's normally like an item or a piece of you that you want to um, give your loved one um, to remember them by or feel close to. So um, Dante Gabriel Rossetti and Elizabeth Sedal um, did that for each other um, so that when... Sadal passed on Rossetti had part of her near um 
And I don't know if anyone's familiar with the poem of Porfiri's Lover by Robert Browning, um, but this idea of hair is also viewed as, a, as an erotic um, kind of symbol. Mm. Um, and in this poem, Robert Browning creates two characters. We've got the lover and then Porfiria. And Porfiria is kind of represented as quite strong. She comes through in a storm and she's she shuts out the storm. She has power to get rid of, of all, like, cold and nastiness and unfortunately her lover isn't very happy with that kind of behavior and he gets very jealous about how the man should have power and he doesn't and he ends up strangling her with her hair so that it's quite a very sad poem but it's kind of a way is that this this hair is kind of like a power symbol for for women and again how men have power to take that away from them so very much like Goblin Market, um, Laura ends up giving her hair away as, uh, as a way of, one, to get rid of her eroticism, she's selling herself, and two, it's also seen, because her hair is described as golden, we can use that as an idea to think that that's a kind of wealth symbol, so it's kind of like acting as money. So in order to get away from the goblins and satisfy their spells, she gives her hair away, which kind of then starts to grey, which symbolises her as a fallen woman. Mm. Uh, so then later, if she wanted to go into society, men know that she's a fallen woman and they won't want to marry her or have any interest in her. So again, she's a subject to male control. Mm. So they they have, there's many ways you can view hair. It can be a powerful thing for women. It can be something that... Um, it's quite erotic. Um, there's art by Dante Gabriel Rossetti, Lady Lilith. She has really long ginger hair. Um, and she's like playing with it in a way that's like really tempting to me. And like her shoulder is like exposed and her hair is just everywhere. And th th there's a way of viewing that as quite liberating for women. But I think in this one, it is a way of just exploring the subject of male control, which is a real shame again <laughs> yeah oh my goodness and and to think that some people think that like the poetry coming out of this period is like boring you know I mean we're, we're talking about these things and of course it's clear that it's you can't just take it at face value there's a message here there's there's all of this symbolism you know it's it's really art that's trying to say something so how did these portrayals of sex workers in literature impact women's rights legislation? Like, how did the situation change for them towards the end of the 19th century? Yeah, so you had, like, people, like, activists that were very angry with the way that the Contagious Diseases Act was and how it impacted women. Um, and one notable lady is... Um, called Josephine Butler. And so she was like the head of the Ladies National um, Association. And she deemed it unfair um, that policing powers were increased in order to give them the access to um, invade women's privacy like that. Um, and she kind of argued that the main problem is actually male vice um, and the sexual tendencies are the main issue, not the actual like females themselves. Um, and this was kind of backed up by like, um, I used historic Hansard to like look at different parliamentary debates that happened. Um, and a lot of M um, male MPs, which really shocked me, um, argued that prostitution of women is kind of down to a supply and demand of men's appetites. So the issue is that this idea of women being vice is so readily available on several like corners of streets. 
Um, so the idea is that the issue needs to be targeted towards men. They need to be criminalized rather than the women. And the women need to be supported to get themselves out of this profession. Mm -hmm. um, and I suppose that's probably why I wrote the dissertation as a way of like giving women a voice that to these marginalized um, women. And they're often overlooked for that reason because they just, people think that the Victorians were prudish and that they didn't take part in sex and things like that. But gosh, they were the horniest people I've ever met, like, yes. like <laughs> in history. Like, <laughs> so I think, I think it was just an important thing to give like a voice to these women that were once shamed. So yeah, it's fun to see why like look at men and how they impact and how eventually by the end of the period obviously we see the suffragette movement um and the beginning of first wave feminism and and how it's still going today so yippee women <laughs> yeah <laughs> yes absolutely so do you think that this kind of literature was influencing the suffragette movement definitely i think there's definitely parts of like I think it's Emmeline Pankhurst um, or one of the um, suffragettes. She kind of stands on a chair and she's trying to reach for something in the cupboard. And that's a famous statue in Manchester. Um, and like that kind of symbolizes that she's trying to do her housework, but she doesn't want to because she can't be bothered to reach like as a way of saying, screw you, I'm not going to like do this anymore. So I think some of this literature is a way of female empowerment, which is what they were all about. It was a way of protesting what I think what the Victorians were like trying to get to but just didn't have the right people to do so until the end of just past Queen Victoria's death so yeah I love the suffragettes for that <laughs> definitely it's a very very exciting time a lot of social change and you did such a great job in this dissertation it was really a pleasure to read so uh what Thank is you. next for you what's what's going on Oh, so what's next? Um, I'm looking to get into publishing and editing. So I'd love to edit some journals for any anything to do with English literature, but mainly my Victorian feminism gets me going. Um, but I'm just enjoying my freedom and just rereading lots of my favorite books. <laughs> I think that sounds oh, like yeah. a great plan. Well, Emily, you've been amazing. Thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's been wonderful. Once again, I'd like to thank Emily Kalea for being our guest today. I would also like to thank our superstar patrons on Patreon. Melanie Baker, Michael Beckwith, Bethany Bennett, Andy Christopher, Charlotte Collings, Rachel Cooney, Michelle Dunbar, James Finch, Brian Fullerton, Adriana Herrera, Sean Ingham, Emma Young, Miriam Caceres, Kirsten Lawrence, Scott Lohman, Lizzie Ortmeyer, Shannon Roth, Catherine Rowley-Williams, Icy Sedgwick, and Denny White. Thank you all so much. If you would like to support the show by becoming a patron, you can find us on patreon.com slash dirtysexyhistory. You can also rate, review, and subscribe, or find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Mastodon, and Blue Sky at Dirty Sexy History. We are also on TikTok, and I promise I'm going to try to update it. <laughs> so if, if that's your thing, stop by and check it out. Uh, as always, our website for longer history articles is DirtySexyHistory.com. Have a great week, guys. I'll see you next time. <laughs>